Amen. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, this morning we begin a new season uh, for us as believers as we look to Advent, as we look to the coming of Christ, as we remember, as we think through and digest all that that means, as we reflect upon and worship God coming to earth and flesh. We also, as a local body, are entering into a new season. We're taking a break from Romans, right? Right? Yeah, a little break. We're excited about that. <laughs> we are. <laughs> so it is a, a transition. And so in, in a sense, we are excited that we get to reflect on what Christ came to do for us. But in, in anticipation, we will get back into Romans. So we're not going to let you down there. We will finish Romans and we'll pick up back in chapter 9, but we will be taking a break and celebrating this season as we lead up to Advent. And this idea of Advent is this arrival, this, this appearance or emergence or the dawn of a new era, of someone new, someone special, and that is Christ our King. And so what I want you to do in this Advent season, I want you to reflect on the coming of Christ, on the first Advent, the birth of our Lord and Savior, that when God came down as man, that when he came to dwell among us and to live among us, I want to reflect on that. And I want to remember that, but I also want us to anticipate and to look forward to the second coming. I think it's just as important. And I think over the years, we focus more on the, on the first coming of Christ. But in this season, I want us to anticipate the second coming. I want us to really focus on that. And so I think the way that we do that is by understanding that we have a role in our waiting. And that role is discipleship and evangelism. That we truly believe that this world needs the gospel. That we truly believe that. And so for us to truly believe that and understand that, I want to give you a deeper meaning, a deeper understanding of this word Advent. I think it's important. And so the word Advent, it derives from the Latin word Adventus. And this doesn't simply mean just the coming or the arrival, because there are two other words in the Latin that mean that. There's two other words that they could have used to express this coming or this arrival. And so the question then is, why did the early church pick this word? Why did they pick it? And I think for this read, listen, listen to what it says. In the Latin word, it, it just has a, a fascinating meaning. It says in, in the form, so Adventus, in the form verb, it was defined not only as arrive, but come to, but also as develop, set in, or arise. So this is in the form verb, but now in its, in its, it, in its word itself, it means this, invasion, infiltration, ripening or growing, and appearance. All meanings that are rich with the gospel presence. And so how did Christ come? He came in a way that infiltrated the thinking of the Jewish religious leaders. He infiltrated a system of thought that was self-centered and legalistic. And he came with grace and truth. And so I think we take this even one step further. 
and we, and we look at what it means from a military interpretation. So they use this word on a military level too. And I think this will bring a clear understanding of this word. So in ancient Rome, they would use this as the glorious entry of the empire into the kingdom. This often happened in the military victory to announce or to testify of the emperor's goodness. In addition to, so here it is, they testified to his goodness, but in addition to celebrating on the battlefield. So there's three phases of this. They testified of his goodness, of his winning the battle, his glorious entry, but they also testified on the battlefield, in the midst of the battle, where we are now. We can testify of his goodness, his love, his joy, his peace, his hope, now, on the battlefield. And then not only that, they celebrated, this word meant that they celebrated his birth, the birth of the emperor, the leader. And so we see that. We see in Christ, we celebrate his birth. We want to look back and remember and celebrate that. But we also want to celebrate now in the battle. We want to express that love and peace and joy to a world that needs it. And then when he comes, when the victory is won, praise God, we'll celebrate with him in eternity forever. And so I want you to recall with me 1 John. You don't have to turn there, but I want to think about John the Baptist for a second. And I want to think about the life that he lived on earth in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. It says he came as a witness and he testified to the light and pronounced his glorious entry as King Jesus. He testified that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And not only does he dwell among us, but he was full of grace and truth. And not only was he full of grace and truth, but he is much greater than me, for I am not worthy to untie his sandals. And then we see something really unique here. We see something really unique in the life of John that I think today should be prevalent in the life of the church. He did not take credit for what he could not do. Instead, he pointed them to the ministry of Christ, to the life of Christ, saying, I must continue to decrease and Christ must continue to increase. So look what he says in John 1 John 35. It says, again, the next day, John was standing with his two disciples. Note that he was standing with his two disciples. These are men that walked with John daily, and he's discipling them. And he says this, he says, look at Jesus as he walks. And he said this, he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the King, the one that I've been talking about. This is he, this is who you should follow. And then the two disciples in verse 37 says, the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. Is this what our waiting on the Lord looks like? Is this what our anticipation of the Lord looks like? His great return? Are we one that want to point our life to Christ and point others to Christ? Like John did? He understood who the king was. He understood the arrival of the great king. And he wanted people to know him. It wasn't about John. And so now, as we've kind of taken this word Advent, and we've looked a little deeper to it, 
What does it mean? What does it mean? I think the answer is this. A deeper understanding of Advent should lead us to a deeper desire for evangelism by proclaiming the glorious return of our King. This is the overarching theme when we walk through hope, peace, love, and Christ and joy. So when we walk through this, I think that our understanding of Advent should lead us, should compel us to a deeper desire to evangelize, a deeper desire to proclaim the truth of God and his glorious return as king to this earth. And so how do we do this? By proclaiming to the world that Christ is our hope, that he is our peace, that he is our love, our joy, that he truly is. And the world needs to see this, that as we are a people founded in this truth, And they don't need to see it, but they also need to see that we believe it. We can say it. All of us have said it. But our actions proving it. Do our actions look like Christ is our hope? Does it look like he's our peace in troubled times? Does our love look like Christ? Or does it look selfish? Is our joy based on things and circumstances? Or is it based on the eternal promise of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ how are we proclaiming it how are we proclaiming this truth and are we a people that truly believe in the power of the gospel and the good news do we believe it do we proclaim it so I pray that as we walk through this Advent season that we are compelled to evangelize our circle of influence with the power of the gospel. And so turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20 will be our focus. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a definition of hope. A definition that comes straight from the internet, straight from the, the world's view of what hope looks like. You can type it in. And they're all pretty similar. And this is the one I grabbed. It says this. The definition of hope is a feeling of optimism or a desire that something will happen. An example of hope is when a person believes his life situation will improve and his run of bad luck will end. Wow. I know at times we've been there as Christians. I know at times when tough situations come, we wonder, we ask why. But I know that what sustains us is the truth of hope, not the wishfulness of hope, not this idea that we're not quite fully convinced. And that's what we see here in the definition of the world. That's where you and I were as non-believers. We weren't fully convinced of a hope. But it was a wish. I wish this could happen in my life. I wish this run of bad luck would end. And so we were there. We were not yet fully convinced. And I think that's important for us to know that that's how the world views the word hope. And I hope that when they see you use the word hope, that it's concrete, that it's truth, that it's real, that it's a reality in our life. 
And so as believers, we see hope as truth and unchangeable. And let me give you a definition of hope in Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. What? What would the world say? You do what? You exalt when life stinks? Yes. Why? Because we know, finish in verse 3, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. There is a reason, there is a purpose. We just talked about it in Romans 8. All things work together, right? All things. There is a reason why we go through tribulation. So that it will bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. That our character reflects that of Christ and not that of the world. That when they see us walk through tribulation, when they see us persevere in times that we don't completely understand, They see the character of God revealed in us. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it continues in verse 4, and it says, proven character, uh, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And I love verse 5. It says, hope does not disappoint. Our hope does not disappoint. It is not weighed on the external. It's not weighed on what we can do or what we can achieve. But it's wait on what Christ has already done, what he has achieved, what he has accomplished. And so it will not disappoint because the love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God gave us the Spirit of God so that we can trust in his hope. You are not alone. There is no problem too big or too small. Because the power of God lives within you. And he has given that to you. Thank God for that hope. And now that we look at the world's view of hope, and we've looked at Christianity in that view, let's look at chapter 6. And look what it means to kind of practically live out this hope in a way that the world will see the gospel in you. We call this evangelism. And I pray that the season of Advent encourages you and reminds you of your gospel duty until the day Christ comes. And it says this in verse 13, it says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to his heirs the promise of the unchangeableness of his promise, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have an anchor of our souls, the hope both sure and steadfast and one with which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us 
having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And now just just to give you a quick overview of chapter 6, I think it's important that we understand where the writer is going here. And so I'm going to be brief here because trust me, chapter 6 is a very difficult passage. It's a very difficult passage and we could sit here for hours and days looking at it. But I want to give you just a brief overview because I do think it's important to explain where the writer is going. And so what he did, he's, he's coming from a warning into encouragement, right? So he's coming from where he just told that there are those who have fallen away. And I know when we think of that, we think of there's a lot of things that can run through our minds with salvation and, and our security and salvation. And so that's a good thought because that's where we're going. That's where, that's where the writer's leading us into. But for you to understand, those who have fallen away is this idea that they have, give, have been given the truth, that they know who God is, the knowledge of him, and yet they've not trusted in him. And we've heard this term, the apostrate. This is that idea. Those who have fallen away, they, that God has revealed his truth to them, and yet they've not responded in trusting in him. And so they are those who have fallen away from the faith. They weren't saved. It's not a salvific issue. And so Paul is moving us into this encouragement, those who have trusted in Christ. So this is the transition. Those who have trusted in Christ, it says in verse, chain, in, in verse 13, those who have trusted in Christ, it says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having plen- uh, patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And so there's three movements throughout this scripture. And in these movements, there's an, there's, a, uh, there's an action or there's an assertion, and then there's a response. And in this, we see it says God made the promise. This is God's declaration. This is his assertion. He said he made a promise to Abraham, and he swore by who? By himself. That there is no one greater to swear by or to make an oath or to make a promise but God himself, creator, sustainer. And so God made a promise to Abraham. And he says this, here's the result. He obtained the promise. He says, I surely will bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so he's using the example that in the early church, they would have all known of Abraham, right? The the forerunner of their faith, the one they looked to as the example and he says he patiently waited. And because of his patience and his waiting, he obtained the promise. This was the result. And so this leads into, this is showing how God's promises are unchanging. They're unchanging. And so it leads into this next step about God himself being unchanging. In verse 16, it says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. And this dispute is a legal, it's a legal terminology. It's a legal situation. And it says in the same way, verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs or to us, the children of his promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed an oath. He gave us an oath. And this word oath is a neat word. It's a good word. It's what we would think of as a will, 
And I don't know if you know much about wills, but when someone passes away, they will things to others. And in this will, it cannot be changed. It can only be changed by the one who wrote the will. But if the one who wrote the will passed away, there ain't no change in the will, right? Right? So it's going to end the dispute. When we go to court, when we go into this legal situation and brother and sister are arguing about how much land dad gave him, how much money, or whatever it may be, the dispute is ended because the will has already been put in place. And so this is the idea that God gave us an oath, his will, that it is ended and it will not change. In verse 18, it says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, the two unchangeable things, the covenant with Abraham and then Christ himself being our high priest, the one who fulfilled everything. These are the two covenants. These are the two unchangeable things. And so we know in Scripture there are conditional and there are unconditional covenants. And this is what he's talking about, the two that are unchanged. So the unconditional are those that he made, to, that God made oaths or promises to in light of their repentance. So it could change. There was a condition on them repenting. And then, but this is a covenant that says there is no condition. Christ is the only way. This is the only way to God the Father. The only way that the covenant will be completed is through Christ himself. And God set him before us. And so by these two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge have a strong encouragement to take hold. This is an action. This is an action. Take hold of the hope set before us. That we need to take hold of this hope. It's not a suggestion. It's an action, a command action. Take hold those who believe, those who have trusted, those who have not, earlier in chapter 6, their condemnation will be themselves. But our glory will be in Christ. Our hope will be set in Christ because we've taken hold of this hope set before us. And so how could our salvation be more secure It can't. And so the encouragement here is in verse 19. It says this. It says this hope we have as an anchor of our soul. A hope both sure and steadfast. And one which enters within the veil. Where Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us. Having become a high priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus has entered as the forerunner for us, having become the high priest. This is the declaration. This is the third declaration. God has sent Jesus to be the forerunner for us. And now we have a hope. It says in Scripture, we have a hope that is an anchor of our soul, sure and steadfast, one that enters into the veil. And so the author changes his imagery here to describe the safety and the security of the Christian. This idea of the ship's anchor. And because of hope and security in Christ due to God's oath, his unchanging oath, his unchanging will, and his character, we need only to cling to him as our great and high priest 
whose substitutionary death on the cross on Calvary paid our sins for all eternity and whose high priestly ministry at the Father's right hand gives us access. It gives us access to draw near for help in times of need and to rest in times of peace. This is what the world needs to see in us. That our anchor of hope is Christ. And that is not just wishful thinking, but it is truth revealed through the promises of God. It is truth revealed. God has revealed his truth to us as his children through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so just as the ship's anchor allows the ship to rest in the midst of storms, in the midst of storms in our life, in the calmness of the bay, it allows it to rest. So our souls rest knowing that the anchor is dredged deep in the promises of God and not ourself. That's where our anchor is. That's where our hope is. It's dredged deep. And so when the world looks at us in the storms, they see Christ. They see a calmness that they can't understand. And then they look at us in peace when everything seems to look good. They see us still striving for Christ. They still see us searching to be more like Christ. Because in the storm, we can get in trouble. We can rely on self, and self gets us in trouble. I don't know about you, but it gets me in trouble a lot. And even in the calmness, we can become stagnant. We can become apathetic. We can just sit and think things are good, and something sneaks up on us. And so it's twofold. It's not just the anchor of the storm. But we also got to understand that we need to anchor our hope in Christ in the midst of the calm and the peace and what seems to be easy. We must continue to seek Christ. And so in our waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ, just as the prophets before us waited, we seek to be obedient to this hope that we have in Christ. And we look to share this hope with a world desperately in need of an anchor for their security. And so practically, what does this look like as we think through this hope, as we think through this hope that has been set before us in Christ? What does it practically look like? I know that we all have different backgrounds, different work situations, different stages of life, whether it's school or work or kids. But practically, I think it looks like opportunities that we need to recognize within conversations in everyday life. I think there's key words that we look for as believers. We hear the word of bad luck. When we think of the word wishful, I wish something would happen. It gives us opportunities to speak truth, to speak a true hope in those situations. When a marriage is wrong and someone speaks to you and leans into you and they're wondering where can they find their hope, and they wish things were better, we can tell them about a hope. When we're sick and we don't understand why, someone doesn't understand why God did this, we can speak of a hope, an eternal hope that is secure in Christ. These aren't easy conversations, but it's a conversation that you and I as believers 
must have if we truly believe the gospel. If it's the good news, if it's all that we need in this life, then why aren't we speaking it into others? Why aren't we sharing this with others? Why aren't we inviting them to be a part of a faith family that loves Christ? Why are we not? So I think it looks like that with our friends, with our families, with our coworkers. I think it's about being intentional too. Not only listening to those conversations, but being intentional about your life and your situation, that you testify about God's goodness. It's one thing to sing it here on Sunday mornings, but are we leaving these walls, are we going out of these doors, and does our life sing a life of hope founded in Christ? Are we being intentional in the way that we carry ourselves, in our actions, in our speech, in our service, in our giving, in our worship? Are we being intentional? Because there is a need for God who is the unchanging God whose promises will not change. He is not a liar, but he is good. And he is our anchor. And it is steadfast, it is sure, and it is one that has entered into the veil through the life of Jesus Christ. And that is where we can anchor our hope during this season of Advent. And I pray that that is something that inspires us, something that compels us to live that life throughout all of life and not just this season, but that this is a good reminder of where Christ can take us in our ministry for him, not for our, just like John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, that when we walk into a world that is persecuting us, that hates us, That we say, behold, the Lamb of God. Look at Christ. Look at his ministry. Look at what he's done in my life. I'm only here because I have an anchor of hope in Christ and not myself. Let me pray. Father, we love you. And Father, I pray that now you search our hearts. God, and you convict us of where we've, God, been lazy, been stagnant. And not, and not accomplishing the true task that you've set us here on earth. And that is to make disciples, to go therefore and baptize and make disciples of all the nations. And Father, that's so hard to do when we trust in ourselves, when we lean on ourselves. And Father, I'm thankful that you gave us your son that you sent your son to be born of a virgin and to live a life completely free of sin and have victory over death so that we could be beneficiaries of that. That we could stand justified before you because of the work of Christ on the cross and that we could infiltrate this world, that we could invade this world with true hope, true peace, love and joy that surpasses all our understanding and points to Christ. When the world doesn't understand our actions, that they lean in and that we can speak truth to them about the reality that Christ is our anchor and not ourselves, Father. I challenge us this morning. 
Convict us to be people that want to share your gospel, your good news, that we believe in the power that it changes lives. It's in your son's name we pray.